0: of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katie Mulligan, editor-in-chief of ACG's magazine, Middle Market Growth. I'm joined today by Denise Logan. Denise works with business owners and their professional teams as they navigate the complex emotional journey of selling their business. She draws on her background as a lawyer, social worker, and business owner to help ease that sales process. In addition to her consulting work, Denise is a frequent speaker and she's also the author of a book called The Seller's Journey. She joins me today to talk about how MA professionals can build stronger relationships right now in our mostly virtual world, as well as in the future once we're all back together again. Denise, thanks for joining me.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure, Katie.
0: So, MA professionals have, for the most part, been trapped at home for the last few months. While we're all stuck on Zoom calls, what advice do you have for building the relationships that are, are really critical to the deal-making process?
1: You know, as humans, we're wired for connection. And so one of the great parts about Zoom is that we get to see each other, which helps to build connection. But one of the things that I think is interesting that has played out in our industry is that there's a high level of competition that we think we're wired for. But the reality is that cooperation is what actually fuels relationships. So Margaret Mead, you may know her, she was an anthropologist, was once asked, what were the first signs of civilization? Was it when they discovered weapons? Was it when they discovered clay pots? Was it when they discovered the cave drawings? And what she said is the first sign of civilization was when they discovered a skeleton with a fractured leg bone that had healed. And she went on to explain that the reason for that is because an animal in the wild, when it breaks its leg, will die. Because it's unable to get food and water and escape from predators. So finding a human animal that had a leg bone that repaired itself, meant that there were others around who cared for and sustained that person while they healed. That's the first sign of civilization, not competition. So we've developed this really distorted view of what we're doing in our industry. And really, those professionals who are focused on building collaboration and connection with each other are
0: the ones who thrive. I want to drill into the relationship dynamics of of private equity and investment banks specifically. What are some of the ways an investment banker can improve relationships with private equity investors?
1: When you think about that story that I just told, trust is a key component that's there. So in order to build trust, we have to feel like we matter to each other. And one of the things that's been a curious piece, as I've been in the industry for the last 20 years, has been almost how we treat each other as business card exchange. I'll give you my card, you give me your card, and then we put them, they used to be called Rolodexes, but there are, (laughs) now we have CRMs. And I often say that it's the R in our CRM that makes our C matter. So if we think about it, it's the relationship that we're building. And some of the ways to do that is to to view the other people that we're interacting with as a relationship we're trying to deepen, not a target we're trying to get something from. And that process, one of the things that we've seen play out between private equity firms and investment bankers, and I hear it a lot, is that the private equity firms tire of being part of an auction process. One where the banks are just showing the deal to everyone in their contact list. And the private equity firms often say they would rather be in what they consider to be a beauty contest, where it's a handful of well-selected folks who are competing against each other on merits, not just on price. I think that also builds a better relationship for our sellers. Because our business owner clients also want to feel like they are more than just a number, more than just a deal. The sad news is that less than a third of companies that go to the market actually successfully sell. That's a tragedy. And what it does is it also creates the sense that we have to all have more and more contacts when the truth is we need better and better relationships. Because when we're in relationship with each other, when we know each other, when we trust each other more, we're able to ride through those natural bumps that happen in any deal. I was invited recently to speak at a private equity firm to help train their professionals. And one of the questions they asked me, how do we get the bankers to tell us the information that they're holding secret? How do we get them to stop lying to us? That's a hilarious question, because my answer was, are you trustworthy? Can the banker successfully share with you the difficult information without you going off the rails? And so when we come back to it, trust is at the core of everything. And trust doesn't happen from treating each other like we're a transaction. Trust comes from actually taking the time to know each other deeper. And often I hear people, when I I talk a lot about relationship and deepening the connection that we have with each other, and they'll say, I don't have time for that. Like, it's my job to get the best price for my client, and that means I have to know more people. And I'm going to challenge that a little bit, because the science shows that a human being can manage a maximum of 150 relationships. And if you think about that, 150 relationships is still a lot to manage. And so often I'll suggest to someone take the top 60 relationships, the 60 that matter most to you, that you want to cultivate. And you can see the panic cross their face because for most, of us in the industry. We have databases filled with hundreds or thousands of content, and when I say 60, there's a panic. But here's my reasoning behind it. If you have one deeply connecting conversation with a person every day during the month, you're only having 20 deeply connecting conversations. If you do that every month for three months, you're having deep connections with 60 people. And the next quarter, you should be starting over with those people. So that if you did that, you chose 60 people that you wanted to deepen a connection with. That's plenty, still plenty of time to talk to the people that you're not deepening relationship with. But a deeper connection doesn't come from six minutes or 10 minutes. It comes from devoting 30 minutes or 60 minutes to connecting with someone and making the choice to be intentional about carving out one hour a day to have a deeper connecting relationship with someone who you want to do work with will pay massive dividends. Can
0: I give you an example of that? Oh, yes. I would love one, please.
1: (laughs) So we're going to go to the sports world. So we're going to talk about Michael Jordan. So one of the things that Michael Jordan did was he built relationships with the referees. And so he knew about their children. He knew about what was going on in their life. He made the time in the lobby of the hotel behind uh, the bench to be able to talk about So I heard your son made the basketball team this year. Eighth grade, that's such an exciting time. And then he was able to say to the referee, this is a particular story that I heard. He was able to say, you know what? Tell your son to keep at it because I didn't even make the junior high team. And I stayed with it and he's ahead of where I was. That night, that particular referee when he got home said to his son, hey, Michael says hi. And the son said, Michael said Michael Jordan, (laughs) do you know Michael Jordan? He's like, yeah, I do. Can you imagine what happened the next time there was a game that the referee needed to make a judgment call? He had a relationship with Michael Jordan, and so they used to call it the Jordan Effect that the referees wouldn't call fouls. They wouldn't, he would take two extra steps when he was dribbling and didn't get called out on it. That comes from relationship and that plays out in our deals as well because there are lots of times in a deal where we need to be able to give each other some grace and that doesn't come if we haven't gotten to know each other.
0: Can you speak to some of the consequences of failing to establish those deeper relationships characterized by trust. You alluded to it a little bit earlier, but I think it bears spending some time on, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways we take for granted, like, yes, relationships are important, but I don't know that we all think about truly what's at stake if we don't establish those strong interpersonal connections.
1: Right. So even in that, that little reference that I made, private equity firm is, it says. so why doesn't the banker tell us the important information we need to know. Because they don't trust you. Then we can go back to the um, the old movie, A Few Good Men, where Jack Nicholson says, you can handle the <laughs> truth. <laughs> so have you built the depth to be able to know that you can handle the truth? Because every deal has hair on it. Every deal has something that the parties are gonna be surprised by. So the is not building truth is that we sandbag each other, and that results in huge loss. How about if we talk instead about the benefits of building relationship and building trust? When we have trust with each other, just like in our own personal relationships, we're able to get to the deeper issue. So here's an example that just from a deal side. The moment we poke at financials, a seller is filled with shame, no matter whether or not there's anything to find. Partly because the seller is used to being the person who knows everything, who knows the answers about their business. And they become terrified that you're going to find something. And so they start acting kind of squirrely. And when I'm working on a, a, a transaction, that's one of the things that I'll warn everyone, including the seller, this is likely to come up for you. The seller will immediately say, I don't have anything to be ashamed of. i are like, I know you don't. We're talking about shame. It's different. And it's likely to happen. By building that small bridge of preparing for what could happen when it happens, which happens in almost every single deal, instead of the seller needing to hide and guard around their feelings, they can actually express what's happening. If they don't feel safe enough with the members of the transaction to be able to express that, they'll act it out. So they'll act squirrely, which of course scares whoever's doing due diligence into thinking there is something to find. And there isn't anything to find, but they continue to dig. So you and I, I think, have talked about this before, about what goes on in our brains and how fear shows up. And fear is tripped off in our brain in a part that's called the amygdala. It's the fear sensor. It's always scanning the horizon for danger. We spot that in each other when someone is concealing information. So we naturally feel it. I refer to it as dog ears. If you've ever had a dog or seen a dog, you can tell they kind of go, they tilt their head, they're like, what? not right and it goes on in all of our deals where someone is concealing information it's actually a biochemical response that sends out a warning signal to the other people we pick up on it and we don't know why so if we build trust and relationship then we're able to say hey what's really going on and get the safety to be able to say what's really happening Otherwise, when one person is concealing information in a transaction, they're also wigging themselves out. We've all been there, where you have a secret, and you're talking to someone, and there's a part of your brain that is always watching. Have they figured out online yet? Have they figured out online yet? Wait, what did that look mean? And it keeps us from being our best self in the deal. And coincidentally, it's also tripping the fear of the other We can close way more deals with way less chaos when we have deep trusting relationships with each other.
0: And I remember when you and I first spoke when we first met you were telling me that you know a lot of the deals that you work on they fail for reasons that have nothing really to do directly with the deal. It could be something that's going on with the seller's family or within someone's own psychology, like you just alluded to um Are there other examples you can share of of something that has caused a deal to fail that is not really directly related at all to the the matter at hand? Oh, it happens so much.
1: So one of my favorite examples is um, it was an eighty-five million dollar deal. We were eight weeks from close when the seller suddenly announced that he would not take a penny less than nine times EBITDA. Never mind that he had already signed a letter of intent at six point two. Well, I know I know your listeners are going to be shaking their eyes yeah. right now because everyone has had a deal that's had a variation of it. So the investment banker called me and said, I think my seller went crazy. I'm like, yeah, sounds like it. Let's see if we can figure out what scared your fella and what hidey-hole we went into and whether we can coax him back out. What had happened is the seller's original plan was to build a business, buy a sailboat, sail around the globe. And two weeks before he asked for this unicorn, his wife had said to him, I'm not doing that. I do not want to be stuck on a boat with you far away from my grandkids. Forget it. Can we agree he is not coming back to the deal team to say the deal is off because my wife won't let me do what I want to do? There is no chance. Instead, he asked for something that he knew he couldn't get so that when the deal falls apart, it's not about him. Kind of self-sabotage. Absolutely. And so everyone else in the deal team was running around chasing this money issue, trying to talk him back to the number he had agreed to. And I said, it's not about what you think it's about. Let's get under here and figure out what really happened and how we can ease this for him. So once I got involved and sorted out what was happening, I did one-on-one work with he and his wife separately, and I brought them back together with a solution where he would buy the sailboat and sail, and every six weeks, she would take one grandchild, fly to where he was, and they would build memories on land with the child for two weeks. She would fly home, he would sail on. Boom, our deal was back on track, closed on time at its original asking price. If that owner had felt safe enough to be able to communicate with the deal team what was happening, that deal would have closed more simply. But we see it's going on in between parties, there was another transaction that I was involved in where two of the lawyers who were involved, they were just at each other's throats in a way that was way disproportionate to the issues they were fighting them. And once I got under what was happening, one of the lawyers had tried to join the other lawyer's firm five years earlier and felt like he got what he considered to be screwed in the offer they made. And that was being played out in the transaction between their clients, where essentially one lawyer was climbing up on top of the other over deal terms. Once we were able to deal with that relationship rupture which is what it was. All of the chaos in the deal settled them. So it's going on all the time. Any of us who have been in a transaction with someone who we didn't trust, it's setting off alarm bells in our own system. And when we later have a transaction with that person, we're carrying that baggage. I call it post-transaction stress disorder, where Folks come to the end of the deal and they just hate each other. They can't wait to get away. What if we did it differently? And that's really what I wrote about in The Seller's Journey. I wrote it as a business fable. It's the story of an owner one year after he sells his business. He went on a trip across Glacier National Park with his banker, his lawyer, his wealth manager, and the private equity buyer. And as they're crossing the glacier, they use the physical obstacles that they're facing and tie them back to the emotional obstacles that they went through to get the deal done. And I wrote it in that way to be able to normalize the emotional things that are going on in all deals and allow both the professionals and an owner who's contemplating selling to be able to read it and fall into the story and see how they act these out in their own deals. Because the truth is we can do deals better and when we have deeper relationships and we are more connected and trust each other more deals close and that's better for the professionals and it's better for the owners and kind of bringing this full circle to that sense that many of us feel we have to keep gobbling contacts we feel we have to gobble contacts because we close so few deals the deals we close where we're able to gently place an owner on the other side of the most vexing chapter in the life of their business and let them move on to the next chapter of their life, those owners become our best referral sources. They can't wait to tell their friends about who helped them. And the way we've been doing deals doesn't generate that. It generates scared owners and scared professionals who worry about being screwed over and who warn each other about the wolves in the pack. And the truth is, we don't have to do it that way. I know because I've been involved in almost 700 transactions this way, and we can do it better.
0: As you were talking, I was I was wondering whether what impact do you think the COVID 19 outbreak will have on all of this and I I guess I ask in the sense that there has been a lot of discussion that in some ways this is increasing our levels of empathy and bringing out our humanity you know we're looking into each other's homes on zoom calls we're seeing each other's kids in the in the backgrounds their pets their art um do you think that that's having an impact just on how we view each other as human beings that could carry over you know past this yeah,
1: and every Zoom call we have is an opportunity to deepen that relationship. I said to you before we got on that I, I, in one of the interviews that I watched, I saw you had a book on your bookshelf that is a book I own. And I thought, oh, this is an opportunity for conversation between us. There's, there's yet another thing we have in common. And over this time that we've been building more connection through Zoom with each other. You're right, we see in each other's homes. We're like, oh, where are you? Instead of the fake background, we see real backgrounds. We see real people. And one of the things that has been great, I've talked to so many people over this three-month period who I didn't realize had an immune-compromised family member, oh, or had a first responder as a family member those are moments of deepening connection that also allow me to circle back so if i hear oh someone's daughter is a nurse in the hospital you can bet that i'm the next time i have a conversation with that person i'm going to want to check in about them and say how is your daughter or how are things i talked to someone recently whose dog had died the day before and You can probably tell I always ask how are you with a much deeper intention than just good, fine. I actually care. How are you? What's happening? And allowing a little more space around our calls so that we have the ability to drop in. There's such a greater sense of humanity that allows us to offer each other grace during the difficult times in our deals and those deals close the myth is that time kills all deals and the truth is that unprocessed emotion and force
0: is what kills deals and throughout the conversation you have you know mentioned some strategies that people can use to deepen their relationships whether it's you know calling down your your contact list and, and the people with whom you're looking to build deeper connections. But to end, you know, could you just recap that and, and what you would suggest for someone who's listened to this conversation and thought, yeah, that's, that's really something that I should be trying to do more of. Yeah.
1: When I meet someone new, I never ask, what do you do? Because that's, a, that's such a shallow question for us. Instead, I might ask, What's the book on your nightstand? Or what's the most interesting thing that's happened in the past week? Or what is the favorite kind of birthday cake you like? (laughs) Something that shifts the conversation, and it inevitably falls into, of course, we're going to talk about what we do. Of course, we're going to talk about the, the practical aspects of it. One story that I remember um, from my prior life when I was leading business development for financial services recruiting firm, which is how I know a lot of folks in the industry, I was doing uh, interviews at a business school, and I was doing 20-minute resume reviews. So every 20 minutes, a different candidate would pop into the seat, and we'd go over their resume to talk about how to break into private. So one young fellow shows up and he sits down in the chair and he was like squirming like he had ants in his pants. And I said to him, what is up with you? And he said, I just bought the ring. And I'm going to propose to my girlfriend at the pizzeria tonight. I was like, no. So I swept his resume off the table. I was like, oh, my gosh, you're not going to propose to her at the pizzeria tonight. Let me save you from the worst proposal story in your entire
0: life. Maybe she loves pizza.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So we spent our time together talking about something completely unrelated to what he and I had thought our conversation was going to be about. Three months later, he called me on the phone, and he said, I don't know if you remember me. I said, of course I remember you. You're the guy that had a ring burning a hole in your pocket. And he said, I took her away to a bed and breakfast, and he told me the whole story of this beautiful proposal. And of course, she had said yes. Over the next many years, He and I had off and on conversations, and it would be when their baby was born or other things. I always was able to reach out to him. He could reach out to me. We built a relationship. We never placed that young guy (laughs) in a job, but his career progressed, and he continued to refer people to us, and I continued to stay in contact with him. I am a decade past, we, leaving the recruiting firm and running my own business, doing this emotional work. And recently, he reached out to me and said, my father-in-law is preparing to leave his business. It's a $150 million business, and he's having trouble letting go. Could I hire you to work with him to help him in the process of exiting his business? That is relationship. That is about having deep, ongoing conversations with people who you care about, recognizing that everyone you know knows someone who knows someone who might be a client or a contact for you. And we don't know exactly where those are going to come. But in the process, we have the ability to recognize that we're given a gift to do this work with each other.
0: Well, Denise, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I've really enjoyed talking with you today. And I think there's a a lot of takeaways here for our listeners as they look to build deeper relationships going forward.
1: It's been my pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts or Google Play, where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help other listeners find out about us. If you have an idea for a guest or a topic that you'd like to hear on the podcast, we'd love to hear your suggestions. Please email them to editor at I'd also encourage you to check out our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more content covering the middle market, private capital investment, and trends in middle market M&A.